people that I talk to on a regular basis about watches didn't get into watches to talk about prices or to like buy and sell them and make money. Uh, it's, it was for the designs. It was to own them and enjoy them and understand the stories behind them and, you know, understand how vintage piece, pieces can tell us about what was going on in, in the times that they were made and what they told us about the people who were buying them. That's a lot more interesting. Hello and welcome to the Hairspring Watches podcast with me, Eric Gustafson, and your co-host, Max Braun. Oh, what are, what are we calling this? Do we have a name yet? We still don't have a name. It's still nameless. That's fucked. I know, it's hard. I am still a fan of two dicks talk balance cocks, but you told me you'd leave if I went with that, so. <laughs> I don't know, man. Two balance cocks. It's a little on the nose. <laughs> uh lug strokers okay well anyway uh we'll start uh my name is eric um my uh co-host here is max and whatever this is um we're we're just two guys who are going to talk watches for a little bit that's the plan with this there isn't really more than that um you probably know me better as hairspring watches or the guy with a huge ass wrist who still wears 36 millimeters (laughs) that seems to be what i'm most famous for um but yeah, I'll let Max introduce himself and we're just going to talk watches tonight. I'm Max. Uh, you probably don't know my Instagram handle, but it's MRB Watches. Uh, I've been around the community for a little while now, buying and selling, uh, both as a collector and as a dealer. And I've done a little bit of writing uh, for Eric and then also for Win Vintage uh, and a little bit for Rescapement back in the day as well. But uh, yeah, thank you guys for tuning in. All our seven listeners. <laughs> um, I think we we have a very loose plan for tonight, but because this is our first episode, I thought it would be fun to talk about uh, prototypes and test dials, which <laughs> which is a super murky world. Um, Max and I are both pretty far on the nerd side of watches. You you might guess from my writing, and if you take a glance at Max's Instagram, you'll definitely see that. Uh, Prototype dials are probably, I think it's fair to say, one of the murkiest areas of vintage watches, just because no one really knows exactly what is kosher and what isn't. And the material that you get from brands is extremely scarce if they even comment at all. But it's a fun world because some of these things are kosher and they're just crazy. Um, And so I wanted to take a second to talk about some of my favorite prototypes and some of the controversies. And then uh, then we'll dig into some other topics. But starting off... um, (laughs) So Rolex, I think, is pretty much where everyone starts. Um, and Rolex has an immense amount of uh, tomfoolery going going about. <laughs> and uh, their albino dials are some of the most fun. I don't know, uh, Max, how deep you go on this. But the albino GMT and albino sub are kind of uh, lore in the collector community. No one seems to know if these were actually prototypes or standard production. Um, Eric Kuz made a few comments thinking that uh, because they were chronometer certified, or at least the dials were printed that way, that they probably snuck out into actual production. But um, if you can find a white dial GMT, that is something truly special. I think there are a handful known, same for the sub. I think there's only actually one sub that's been publicly known as 6204. Yeah. And, um, and, but albino dials are pretty special. And one GMT also. Uh, there's a handful of explorers that are known. One uh, was for sale as recently as this year. Um, but, you know, we're, we're talking about across three different models, uh, probably less than a dozen known. Yeah, exactly. And then there are also the, uh, the four... Uh, albino Daytonas, one of which is owned by Clapton that I kind of collected are collecting lore as well. Uh, but my favorite are the test dials. I don't know, Max, how familiar you are with these, but Zenith dials, or sorry, Zenith Daytonas have these test dials. And we should say that there's a very, very good chance that these dials were made either for chronometer testing or internal testing at Rolex and then uh, cased up later. So probably not in the words of Lady Gaga born this way, but there are, there are quite a few of these um, that you'll see and they all have different, slightly different arrangements. Um, I don't know how to say this guy's name, Max, you might, but he's a quite well-known author, Pucci Papaleo. Is that, am I close? It's close enough for people to know who you're talking about. (laughs) Okay, cool. Uh, He's cataloged a few of them. Um, They're all white flat dial blanks um and they don't have any um applied coronet and they don't have any superlative chronometer signature it's just rolex cosmograph but what's interesting is they um they would do testing with um 
to my knowledge, hands starting and ending at different positions, and they would mark this on the dials. There would be these little tiny black dots around various registers that would be used in testing. And they're in different position, different positions in um, different dial specs. So the Zenith, de- the Zenith test dials, rather, are um, particularly interesting to me just because so little is known about them. Um, I don't know, Max, if you have any prototype Rolexes that you're crazy about, but those are, those are three that um, are just wild, I think. No, I mean, it'll come up uh, over the course of our conversations, but there are certain segments of vintage that I just by nature stay away from. Uh, prototype or test style Rolexes in particular, I would say, are sort of a, a taboo area for me. And, and I think that's really driven by just the lack of certainty over what is legitimate and what is illegitimate. And even of those examples that are uh, legitimate or, or would at least be considered to be legitimate. Uh, as you stated before, many times we're talking about dials that weren't born in the cases in which we now see them. Uh, and as somebody who's so concerned with uh, condition, that's problematic for me. Obviously, in a lot of instances, uh, the market disagrees with my opinion, and that's great. But um, I, I'll, I will be the first to confess that my knowledge here is pretty limited just because I've stayed away from them over the years um, and frankly haven't had many opportunities to handle them to begin with. But uh, it's it's more out of fear and uncertainty than anything else. They're certainly interesting to look at. You've had one recently, haven't you? Um, which are you talking about? Oh, our, uh, yeah, our... Um uh, Favre Luba or Favre Loiba. Uh, that, that's a cool thing. Um, and again, I'm always very clear when I write descriptions for lots or anything like that, that this is, um, I, I write what I know and what I don't know and what I think is known in the community and what is not. Um, I agree. Prototype dials are always extremely tricky territory and it, it just takes extra effort and extra digging. And a lot of times you have to get in touch with the brands. Um, but then again, I, so I'll move on to the next one. One of my favorites, are the uh, early Project Alaskas, the Speedmasters that were um, made for NASA, which famously um, are government property. Some are, some aren't. But uh, of the ones that aren't, a few have auctioned and a few have auctioned with uh, certificates. And then then the question uh, then becomes, how much faith do you put in an Omega extract of archive? Sorry, not certificate, but... um, there's a uh, there's a uh, Speedmaster from last year that sold, which has a 24 uh, 24 hour scale, and then another that has this um, 60 minute bezel. And I just I I find it amusing when you are able to kind of find a fresh take on a watch that you're so familiar with. These different slightly different bezels in this case that is just so normal to you just interrupts the design in a way that I find really fun and inter- interesting. But I find it fun almost academically because most of these for me, like you, Max, are just too risky to even get involved with because of what is known and what isn't. I mean, I was just going to run through some of my other favorites. Um, Antiquorum in 2019. I don't know, Max, if you're familiar with the um, Aquanaut prototype that they sold. It did a lot of press at the time. Uh, it just has one power phase off center from 12, but it's um, it's worth looking up. Just if you go to Antiquorum's May 2019 auction, it sold for 401,000 Swiss, but um, the dial design is just so different. And it, it, granted, it says prototype on the dial, but normally when you have um, early Aquanauts, you'll find, and it, it'll drive you crazy if you look at the indices closely, but they're not pointing towards the center of the dial. All the different indices at all the, you know, the Aquanaut has this kind of weirdly, it, it, I always say the bezel kind of looks like it hasn't finished rendering, but the the lines that are on normal Aquanauts are not drawn towards the center um, and the hand stack. And on this, it's just dots, which I find quite a bit more pleasing personally, but uh, there's only one and it's gone. Yeah, so, it reminds me. I, I am familiar with the watch. It, it is definitely a weird one. <laughs> um, the, the dots remind me of what Pac-Man eats in the game. Um, <laughs> and we see we see that power reserve style come up later in, uh, I believe, in some Nautilus models. I don't know if it came up again um, with Aquanauts, but... It's a funky watch for sure. I've heard a lot of differing opinions, as you'd expect, as to the legitimacy of of this one. Um, but it definitely hit a big result. Yeah, huge number. Uh, and then moving on to something that I think is going to be topical later. 
Um, Universal Genève Compacts. There is a, a very famous dial in these that uh, appears in a few case references, but most commonly 22410. Um, and it has this kind of ivory sector dial uh, with a gray inner and it's super Bauhausian and restrained compared to what we normally see. And then the sixes and the nines have this thin open sans serif font. It's a very lovely dial. But um, again, most people seem to think that these were possibly test dials or possibly scrapped and then sold out the back door because collector consensus seems to hold that there are about 30 of these dials ish. Um, and they, they show up in different cases, which already is kind of a red flag, but there's a lot of lore in the universal community around these. Um, ben Clymer is said to own one. Uh, we see them in Spillman cases. Uh, we see them in earlier cases, but they're just, they're an attractive dial for what it's worth. Um, and they're, they're, just, they're just kind of fun to speculate about. And with all of these, it's probably likely in the future that more information will come out. Um, but in the meantime, it's a, I, I, the dimly lit corners of collecting are, are fun to study because you don't really know what you'll find if you dig really hard. And prototypes are certainly one of those things where it's worth digging and it's probably worth being extremely skeptical, but um, just kind of fun to contemplate. And granted, as this is our first episode, that's what we're doing. So the UG, I'm going off of memory here, but Alessandro had one of these earlier this year, if I remember correctly. Is that right? That's right. Yep. Yeah. So... It, if, if you guys aren't familiar with Alessandro's at Mr. A on Instagram, um, I had the pleasure of meeting him um, a little over a year ago in Milos, Greece. He's a great guy. He's got um, really interesting tastes and loves to post things that you don't always see. Um, that UG was certainly one of us. It was funny when that came up because I could have sworn that I'd seen that watch before and I couldn't quite place it. Um, and it took me probably two hours of digging around online before I realized that it was uh, at one point featured in Bring a Loop on Hodinkee. Um, Adam uh, Golden had one, uh, Menta Watches, and uh, it was being offered for sale back in 2017 for 50000 I'd have to imagine it's worth about the same amount today, if, if I were to guess. But uh, these could pop up I periodically. I want to say they've been around 60. Yeah. Yeah. So these pop up periodically. They're always fun to see. I, I mean, we'll talk about UG some more later uh, on this episode, but uh, their vintage stuff hits a lot more than it misses. Well, I think that's probably worth talking about now. Is there a greater segue for our first segue? Um, in what is probably the headline news of the year, at least for me, I mean, Rolex buying Booker is a pretty big one, but I think for people who love Universal, um, Breitling buys Universal Genève for, I think it was 69 million, uh, which is a huge number. It's funny, before this happened, I'd heard rumblings from different people. Um, you know how all the, uh, uh, the micro brand set are always trying to find a good brand name for the next project. I know of a few people who had tried to make pitches um, and always come away with, oh, these guys want way too much, but they got it in the end, so good for them. Um, yeah, Universal is coming back. Max, what do we think about this? I was surprised, um, you know, like you, I, I had heard some rumblings uh, in the lead up, but uh, nothing concrete and certainly uh, no specifics as to the purchase price. Uh, it is a huge number. Um, you know, for people who may not understand, like UG's was non-existent until Breitling bought it. It was a name. So they literally paid 69 million or whatever the, the number was, 67 million, uh, for the name only. Um, you know, I, I do think that Breitling is a brand that probably lends itself to UG pretty well, given the focus, uh, on, on tool watches, specifically chronographs, um, and so the, the branding feels like something of a fit. Um, I, like many uh, watch Instagram accounts, uh, also, though, have a, a, a sense of skepticism that uh, a modern Universal Genève can hold a candle to their vintage counterparts. Um, you know, I would say I'm cautiously optimistic, but a heavy dose of skepticism for me that they'll be able to pull this off. I will say, like, I, I do need to give Breitling some credit. Um, I think since they brought Fred Mandelbaum on board a couple of years ago to consult, uh, the brand has improved. Uh, their offerings have gotten a lot better. The, the, the watches have become a lot more impressive 
technically the designs have improved. They've slimmed uh, the, the case construction considerably on a number of models, and that's important uh, uh, to, to me. That said, you know, I don't know that there's a modern Breitling in the catalog that really sings to me to, to the point where I'd feel compelled to go out and buy one. Um, UG is a brand that holds, uh, you know, a pretty big part of our hearts as uh, vintage enthusiasts. And, you know, it, it would definitely dent uh, my feeling towards the brand a bit should the execution not be there. Um so I'm curious to see what they come up with. I think if there was a brand to do it, Breitling it probably makes the most sense. Um, I hate to break it to you, Max. I'm not sure how optimistic you should be. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm, I'm trying to give them the benefit of the doubt. I applaud that. Uh, optimism is a fine quality. I suspect they're going to make a modern watch. Uh, and this acquisition only makes sense in the context of being able to... Um, kind of be synergistic with Breitling's production already. I just, I, what we love about Universal Genève, small case proportions, beautifully designed and a penchant for complication, I would say broadly speaking. Is that accurate? Yeah, I think so. I just, I don't, I struggle to believe that that's possible. Um, I'm a little bit more optimistic than I was last week because I've heard rumblings that they're involving the collector community uh, in a pretty serious way already, As Breitling which has. is great. Yeah. Um, exactly. Yeah. But you have to wonder just how much of that flavor are you going to be able to get into something that um, has ample water resistance and a modern movement and this huge power reserve and whatever else. That's commercially um, viable. I, I, yeah. Exactly. I think to have it be commercially viable, we're going to wind up with 40 millimeters and a decent case thickness. And um, granted, design can do a lot. And so maybe we shouldn't discount it. But I'm just... I think there's going to be probably even more so than Breitling, a very harsh line between vintage universal and what is going to come out in a couple of years, uh, just because there's no through line. And then also I think there's going to be just a drastic difference in proportion, but we're speaking about things that don't exist yet. So maybe, <laughs> maybe they'll prove us both. It wrong. just seems like the thesis of it is really tricky. Uh, like if I, you know, let's remind everyone that Breitling is currently owned by a private equity group, um, which is a world that, I'm pretty intimately familiar with the the risk calculus here doesn't really make a lot of sense uh, to me. You know, Breitling, like so many other brands, including the big ones, doesn't really make its living off of selling to vintage enthusiasts, enthusiasts, or or frankly even watch enthusiasts. Uh, you know, they they cater more towards casual buyers because that's where volume is. Um, and that's fine and that's good. And I, I think they've done a good job in tailoring that a little bit to, to be more engaging with the vintage community in the recent years. But uh, you don't buy and revive Universal Genève to go sell to a casual buyer. Uh, your average guy buying a Super Ocean or an Avatimer or what have you couldn't give a shit about Universal Genève because they don't know anything about it. Um, now maybe you pull off the execution of the watches and make something kick ass and, you know, the vintage enthusiast community gets excited about it, but that doesn't make it commercially viable. Um, and so I'm left scratching my head a little bit. I, you know, I'm happy to, to see them try. I do think it's a really tall task. Let me ask you this then, just to really crystallize this, what in your eyes would constitute a success of this project? Just give me like one or two things. Yeah, I mean, I would love to see them go sub 38 millimeter. I would love to see them do something interesting with the case construction. Some of our favorite UG's featured wire lugs. I think that would be an excellent, it doesn't have to be wire lugs specifically, but like some something inter some interesting case construction uh, would be great. Uh, and I would definitely like to see them leverage uh, their history with interesting dial designs on chronographs. And, you know, what I'm kind of dancing around, but to, to put a finer point on it is I, I don't want to just see them revive an Evo Clapton or a Nina or whatever, or like a teal dial. 
Um, I, I don't want a revival. I, I want to see them make something new. But when we see it, we should say, oh, that's a UG. Um, and, you know, if it takes a little bit of education to, to, the, to the public and to the collector community, that's okay. But they, they need to be respectful of the, the design language from the past uh, while introducing some, some new technology to make it a little bit more commercially viable. It's a really, really tough line to tell. Yeah, it's a super fine line to walk. I was even going to say if they can get down to 38 millimeters, right. that was going to be one of my successes. Uh, I think we're broadly aligned there. Um, UG always wore super flat too, even though they were generally 36, the 60s chronographs that we think of were 36 millimeters. They always wore pretty close to the wrist and flat, even when they were complicated. And one of the things I'd really like to see is them leveraging all of their movement powerhouse to create complication for this brand that doesn't add case thickness. Yeah. I think that would be cool to see because that's something UG executed so well on. And then um, I, I'll agree with you on the philosophy side, which is it's always much more interesting to me when a brand kind of takes uh, the ethos of the era and um, what the design was pointing towards instead of literally copying the design. Mm -hmm. And it's sort of the opposite approach that Zenith have taken. Much as I love, you know, some of the, some of the early chronographs, I would be so much more interested in um, in a modern take on that philosophy rather than a modern take on that design. Yeah. That's really the direction I'm hoping that UG points. It in. kills me when brands beat a model to death. We see this a lot with the Black Bay. We see this a lot with the Speedmaster. We we see this a lot. Um, with a few other models. Uh, so yeah, I mean, I, I agree with you. I, I don't want to just see them make the same watch over and over again with slightly different colors or, or whatever. Um, the other thing that I, I think is worth mentioning with this is uh, vintage UG is great on bracelet or uh, strap, but uh, I would say particularly on bracelet, their gay frere, um, bracelets are, are some of the best and really make the watches pop and, and sit well on the wrist. I would love it if Breitling makes a clear and concerted investment in the bracelet for the watch. I know some uh, modern Breitlings obviously are offered on bracelet. I'm not really aware of any that, you know, really knock people over in terms of the quality. So uh, that would be a great way, in, in my mind, uh, for the, for the watch to or the watches rather to stand out if there's clear uh, investment in the technology around the bracelet, so that it really uh, sits well on the wrist. And case construction is certainly a part of that, but uh, you know, there's definitely a lack of like great modern bracelets, in my opinion. Um, so I, I think there's that's an area for them to capitalize. When I think back to those. Gay for our bracelets, the word that comes to mind is always silky. And whenever I try something on, whether a Breitling or even a modern sub, the, the word that I just I focus on chunky. That's always the difference in vintage versus modern in my mind. And I just hope they can bring back some of that feeling. And I honestly don't know where that comes from as someone who doesn't make watches. I suspect a part of it's just the construction of the era, but it also has to be, um, generally speaking, I think we see a lot of larger links today. And the construction of those bracelets probably was more time intensive in the Gay Frere era because they're just smaller links, more intricately made. I'm thinking of the beads of rice or the five link that they have. It's all, it's all just a kind of more tighter construction. And I hope they replicate some. I of that. think size of the links is a huge part of it. I would also say the size of the clasp. Uh, it's gotten longer and thicker than vintage counterparts uh, for, for the most part. I, I think uh, particularly when your wrist is uh, resting on a surface, it, it plays a huge factor in how it feels. Yep. Well, we've gotten down to bracelets. I think we've covered <laughs> off what we want to see out of Universal Genève. Yeah, 100%. I'm excited to see what they come out with. Good riddance. <laughs> to vintage Universal. Onwards to the next chapter. Yeah. So you want to kick it to auctions? Yeah, I think um, we have just gone through uh, the fall auctions as we're recording this. It's December 20th. And the market's in a pretty interesting place right now. Um, I think it's probably worth just highlighting a few lots uh, from the season that we just saw go by and a few takeaways um, because things are changing. Yeah, 100%. I agree with you. The market's in an interesting place. You're, you're hearing a lot of people say things like, oh, you know, pricing is returning back to levels 
uh, pre-COVID. And I, and I think for a lot of stuff, that's probably true. But there are, are a considerable number of outliers, which that might defeat the, the definition of the term outlier. But um, that's not the story for everything. I, I think we're still, and particularly in vintage, we're still seeing a lot of really strong results and, and compelling uh, examples continuing to, to move up into the right. So we, we selected four um, that really, you know, jumped out to us, both n- not just for their results, but just for the quality of the watch. Um, and these are sort of the, the bell cows, um, we think, for, for, uh, for this uh, New York auction season. So the first one, um, and this was really more of a me pick than an Eric pick, so if you hate this, you can shake your fist at me, uh, was lot number 88 at Phillips, uh, which was a Patek Philippe reference 844, a white gold uh, pocket watch. Um, it is a perpetual calendar with an American-style calendar. It's also uh, moon phase, and um, it is a minute repeater. So this is one of two known from Patek. Uh, this one from the collection of Jean-Claude Biver. Uh, the watch was manufactured in 1973. It is 51 millimeter in diameter. And this sold uh, all in for $406,000 off of an estimate of 200K to 400K. So, you know, the reason why I highlight this is because in a lot of ways, this watch captures everything about vintage Patek that uh, I love. It's a very, very straightforward, almost sterile uh, dial design. Uh, It's extremely elegant and refined. Um, And there's a lot more than meets the eye in in that if you flip the watch over and open the back, uh, it's a pretty exceptionally complicated piece, uh, particularly for being from the early 1970s. It's just a beautiful watch. Uh, you've got rarity here. It's one of two known uh, in white gold. It has provenance. It's from, uh, as I mentioned earlier, the collection of Jean-Claude Biver. Um, and so this is really just a powerful piece. Um, it's in exceptional condition. And I was happy to see for, uh, I was happy to see it go for slightly above the high estimate. This was a good result. I was I was a little surprised that uh, the Biver provenance didn't add more to it, honestly. Um, just going off the couple previous results we have, there aren't many, but uh, I normally take the top end of the estimate from Phillips as, as closer to reality. And that hasn't been the case uh, maybe in the last year, uh, but generally speaking, they tend to put, let's say, attractive estimates on their lots. And 400 is um, about where I would expect a standard example to sell. This being from JCB, uh, I, I just I would have expected a little bit more, honestly. Not that I'm paying for it, but it's just it's interesting. Yeah, I mean, it's just tough when there's only two, right? Um, so it's hard to really compensate anything. I, I would say, like you know, if you're looking across the four metals, there's white, yellow, uh, rose, and platinum. Uh, you know, white would certainly be the least desirable uh, of the four, so I think that plays a factor. And then also, like I, I kind of said in the intro here, like I think a lot of people would look at this dial not, re- not really knowing what it is and dismiss it as kind of sterile. Um, I just don't think it has that pop um, that you really need for a watch uh, in an auction to, to, to just soar uh, head and shoulders above the high estimate. Um, you have to really be a nerd to love this. (laughs) Um, So, you know, I think that hinders it a little bit. What are you saying about our listeners? It's the first episode. You can't insult them already. (laughs) It is worth mentioning that um, we saw this same uh, reference come up for sale uh, at Sotheby's in their May sale. It was a yellow gold example. And that actually went for less. It went for 165000 Now, yellow is less rare. It's not like there's only two of them. So I think the lack of rarity hinders the value there. And then also, I don't think it had any provenance of note. Um, and you saw it go for significantly less than half of this one. So I think Phillips just kind of nailed the estimate on this one. And 
I don't know that this is a hard one to nail the estimate on because I think your bidder pool is pretty small for a watch like this. Hats off to them then. Got to give credit where credit is due. I don't give them kudos often. But. And yeah, speaking of, I is okay if I take the start on the uh, JPS, which I think is the next one in our lineup. Yeah, line. yeah. Um, Sotheby's had a mega result for what was a mega watch, which is always a just heartwarming thing to see. Uh, this is uh, the 6241 John Player Special, um, named after the Lotus livery. Uh, it's just, it's one of the sexiest Daytonas. And what's very, very fun about this one is it comes uh, from an American buyer in 14 karat yellow gold, which is, um, as an American, it's just kind of fun to see. If you don't know the history, um, Rolex made a handful of their gold Daytonas in 14 karat for export to America because for some reason with customs and import tariffs, it was cheaper to do that way. So uh, we're left with a handful of what you want to call uh, American Daytonas in 14 karat yellow gold. And this one came from the Midwest. Uh, and I'm pretty sure that uh, the gentleman had to be happy with the result for what was just I think one of the best case condition and dial conditions that we've seen in a long time. I, the only thing I can hold against this watch is that it didn't come on a uh, rivet oyster bracelet, which uh, is one of my favorites, but um, you can't be mad at this watch. It's just fantastic. I don't really have much more to add. It's probably the best JPS in the world, and uh, the result seems to support that. I want to, as a... As a uh, um, child of the Midwest, I'm curious to know this gentleman and if it was his Midwestern sensibility that led him to buy this watch on a strap rather than the rivet oyster. Just a personal curiosity if anyone from Sotheby's wants to get in touch. Yeah, you know, at first I was thinking, okay, it's like any other gold Rolex. He wore the crap out of it and then, you know, the bracelet kind of got shot and he just scrapped it in favor of a strap. But there's not a ton of sign of wear on this watch on the case or the dial or the pushers or crown or whatever. So, you know, maybe he just liked the look of the strap. I, I don't know, but um, it looks killer. It, you know, putting it on a black strap, it, it really accentuates the bezel and dial uh, and sub dials to some extent too. It, it's really a killer look. You don't see it super often. I, I love how subdued it is. I mean, I'm not going to say it's ugly, but I want a bracelet. <laughs> Wear it on both. <laughs> if you want it on a strap, uh, what about the Ovatone, which I think is the next one we were going to cover? Yeah, another one of my picks. So I, I wanted to highlight this one. It's sort of similar to the JPS in that it's the property from the family of the original owner. Uh, and it's likely the best reference 6105 that exists. Uh, I've certainly not seen a better one. The, the watch is flawless. Um the dial has a little bit of radium burn around the center. It looks great. It's not bad at all. The case has minimal signs of wear. It looks to be unpolished. All the loom is present and accounted for. The hands have aged really nicely. There's not too much oxidation on any of the three. Um, and then setting aside the condition, it's just a reference that I care for quite a bit. Um, it's a watch that if you were to look at the pie pan dial, you would almost think that it should be in a smaller case. So it, it appears almost oversized. And then you've got in the engine tuned bezel, uh, which is sort of like a coin edge look. Uh, and, and it's just uh, a, an absolutely killer combination. Um, early, early Rolex, eat your heart out. So um, this <laughs> one... At an estimate of forty thousand to eighty thousand, and the all-in price was uh, a nose hair under ninety-four k US, um, which is a really strong result for a watch like this. Max and I talked about this a bit privately before we started recording, but I just want to quickly say one of the things I love about um, these early bubble backs or Ovatona Datejust uh, is just that Rolex was still really figuring out the formula. And when you study the details of this, it really doesn't make a ton of sense. Like you have Datejust in like bright red writing as if it wants to be a sub. And then the uh, the indices at 12, 6, and 9 are are luminous, but at the center of an arrowhead. Um, it's just it's just a bit strange when you're so used to the standard Rolex design. Uh, and then I'll also say, if you ever wanted an example of what a great case looks like 
on an early date just this is one to remember and i don't think we said but it's lot 145 at the sotheby's important watches sale if you're trying to look at some images and also on a strap and also on a strap yeah <laughs> although i will say it would look better on a rivet oyster it even would. though it <laughs> probably would never sold that way but, i i think that one with the smaller with the 36 millimeter case size it, it could uh stand to gain a lot by being on a bracelet uh, I also really want to quickly cover off uh, at the Phillips sale. We saw, I think, maybe lagging interest, it's fair to say, in independence. And there's been quite a lot of conjecture, conjecture, excuse me, in the community uh, about exactly why this is, if it's um, kind of uh, sheep and wolf's clothing or, or just what's been going on. I, I would call it more of a return to normalcy. If you... Um, if you want to look at uh, a friend of Hairspring, King Flum has an excellent weekly newsletter called Screw Down Crown, not to just plug our buddies, but uh, he's graphed every single result for simplicity over the last few years. Uh, and it, it's clear that there's a little bit of uh, black magic going on somewhere. But I think what we're seeing is kind of results echoing pre-COVID market, which in my estimation is probably healthy. Uh, Max, I don't know if you have any thoughts on the indies, but it's interesting to watch. Yeah, I mean, on the big, well, I mean, I guess the first word that comes to mind when anyone thinks indie, right, is Jorn. Uh, and I just think we've hit a point where the community has reached like some level of exhaustion uh, with, with the brand. And I, I think the reason for that is between auctions and dealers and private sales, you can probably find close to a hundred Jorns for sale at any given time. Uh, and it just gets exhausting when auction season after auction season after auction season, we're seeing, I don't know, call it a couple, a couple dozen Jorns for sale. Like I think people, I don't want to say people are getting over it because they're still delivering strong results, although not the results of a year or two years ago. But uh, we're just seeing it soften a little bit. And I, I think people are just looking to other things. Um, now, outside of Jorn, uh, you know, you called out the, the simplicity. Uh, you know, I, I don't know that I have much to add there. I, I think the prices were getting a little silly <laughs> there for a little bit, particularly when you take into context what the retail prices for those watches have uh, become. Uh, and then on some of the sort of neo-vintage indie stuff, like your Daniels and Smiths of the world, uh, I, I think you're seeing a similar pattern. Uh, I, I think people have kind of gotten a little bit numb to the novelty of seeing these things come up for sale. And I, I think it's been that and a combination of learning a bit more as to how these watches are actually constructed that it's led to the, the market softening on them a little bit. Um, I think learning of construction is a part of it. I also feel that a lot of this market was built on implied scarcity and handcraft. And I think many people are realizing that scarcity is limited to maybe a few select models or a few select references. Yeah. Uh, and handcraft is applied selectively on some components, uh, but it's, it's not an independent wide metric uh, at all. Um, but you just mm -hmm. have to be careful and know exactly what you're buying. And I would also say, um, I don't know if I'm opposed to the market going back this way because I have quite a respect for the, the sort of, uh, patron artist relationship that it used to be in the early days of the space when I think Max, you and I were getting into watches. Uh, I have to some, to some extent, I just wonder if um, it, it's better left on a smaller scale where it's, it's not something that's so, so uh, tethered to price. Um, I just, indie speculation has always, that hasn't been the point of the market to me. And there's always been a lot of speculation around it. And granted, it's hard to separate values this large um, because it's a considerable part of purchasing something like this. But I, I tend to appreciate these watches more for what they are and less for what they're worth. And I think that would be healthy to see it go back that way. Yeah, I mean, th there's a fundamental issue when the primary headlines around the segment are look at how much this went for. And not about, you know, because again, we're largely talking about watches that are in production, right? We should be talking about technological feats or beautiful designs things of that nature, like traits that are actually inherent to the manufacturing and, and quality and beauty of the watches. 
that's hasn't really been the case for the last few years. It's been more look at the price, look at the price. Uh, that has never felt healthy. Uh, and, and I think it's largely led to a lot of the pullback we're seeing today. Um, Completely agree. But yeah, and, and the last thing I would say there, and you, you touched on it, is independent watches, like what is that segment supposed to have going for it? It, it is scarcity. They're supposed to be handmade objects. Uh, they're, it, it, we're kind of undercutting that notion when in any given auction season, you're seeing, call it, two dozen, three dozen uh, of these independents scattered across brands at any given auction sale. Um, it's just never really felt like it made sense. I would add uh, creative design. Uh, I, that's what I kind of view the independent space as a place for sort of unbridled personal creativity to run rampant. Yeah. Um, scarcity is definitely a part of it, but I just want to put that in as well. Yeah. The last one that we wanted to highlight um, also comes from Phillips. It was lot number 89 of Patrick Philippe reference 1518. Uh, this one had sat in a private collection for about 20 years. Um, it, it was really a strong example. The, the dial uh, has certainly been touched up in the past and had some marks, particularly around the outer scale, but by Patek standards uh, was very good. Uh, the case looked fairly sharp uh, as well. Um, this was, I'm just looking at my notes here. Uh, so this would have been an early series, maybe a second series, 1518 from 1950. Um, and it went all in for 1.8 million off of an estimate of 1.2 to 2.4. Um, so, I mean, th this will kind of be a step into the topic we wanted to cover next, which is sort of where the market sits today. And I think the JPS, the Ovatone, this 1518 really underscores our idea that, you know, while we've seen a, a pretty broad pullback in the market, uh, and that extends into vintage, there are still positive trends going for the examples that are compelling. Yeah, I'll, I'll, tie, I'll, um, I'll try and add a little bow on this as well. Um, I think if we're talking about vintage here, I was surprised positively by a few of the results. But you, what you have to do is take the vintage market and the hype watch vintage market, things like 5402s and 3700s, out of the equation. Um, and then I actually do think we're starting to see a little bit of a resurgence in, in vintage. Um, and granted to your yeah. point, there are always strong results for exceptional watches. I don't think that that buying community has even been slightly affected by the pullback. Um, the results are still strong for the JPS and the 1518. Uh, but in, in um, the more middle, call it level market vintage, uh, I think we're still seeing, if nothing else, certainly a, a continuation. Um, but I was pleasantly surprised with some of those yeah. results as well. Uh, absolutely. I mean, we continue to see record results. Like, you know, the JPS was the most expensive JPS sold, I believe. Correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, you're right. Yeah. The Space Dweller at Phillips is the most expensive uh, Explorer ever sold. And, you know, that's for a watch where the dial was pretty unlikely to have been born in that case. Um, the, mm -hmm. the 1518 at Phillips is, is one of the better performing 1518 Rs. Um, you have to obviously separate it from pink on pinks. But for white dial examples, this was one of the stronger results. Um, so we're definitely yep. seeing strength. Um, you know, what we've seen on the front end, when I say we, you know, I, I do a little bit of buying and selling on the side and work uh, frequently with, with a few dealers. Y your, your watch isn't going to sell unless it has a compelling reason to sell. And while that may sound obvious in practice, it's actually a, 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 a little interesting how hard it can be to convince somebody, uh, you know, a potential seller of this. And so what does it really mean? Like what it means for us is that the watch has to be either an exceptional watch um, or it has to be a more common watch in exceptional condition condition. Or if it's neither of those, usually in this extends, I would say more to the modern stuff than in vintage, it has to have uh, a compelling price. Um, and so, you know, at any given time, if I'm looking at the things that I'm trying to sell, it either 
has to be something, uh, you know, a watch that's just extremely difficult to find. And, you know, you can't go comp it to, you know, 20 other examples on Chrono 24. Or, you know, something that's a little bit more common, say like a 16570 from Rolex, uh, in exceptional condition and exceptional for me, uh, generally means unpolished, all original parts. Um, you know, some but attractive wear. Or it could be, you know, something average, like a modern date just or something. And, uh, you know, I, I like to believe I'm decent at selling, but I'm not going to be able to sell it unless it's priced ultra aggressively. So you kind of have to find yourself in one of those three categories if you want your watch to sell. I always, um, I'm always hesitant to extrapolate from my own experiences at Hairspring because it is such a small sample size and I work with such a kind of niche of the overall market when I, where I'm always trying to select for things that are special in the first place. Um, but that's the exact advice I normally give people when they're incoming at the moment, which is that um, if the watch is exceptional or special in some right, if there's, if there's a collector in the market, they will probably want it. But if it's not, then there needs to be a reason for someone to pick it up and price is uh, your only lever on something that's more common. So that's just the state we're in right now. Yeah. And to be clear, like, I, I think this is largely healthy. You know, I, I don't think well, I you should be able to, to ask top of market prices for things that are kind of shitty uh, or just like run <laughs> of the mill, whatever, you know, like it, I, I'm, I'm more than happy to pay top of market for stuff that deserves it. But, you know, and one of the hard things about that is uh, just letting people know exactly yeah. what the differences are in the condition of an exceptional watch. And that's where scholarship really does become important because you're actually not going to know when you have a fantastic vintage watch in your hands if you haven't spent your time studying that exact reference and the nuances that it holds. And that's where working with someone that does know what they're doing is helpful. But even then, it's good to have that knowledge yourself. Um, so really studying these things closely um, because condition as a uh, um, as a premium is, is worth, you know, it's worth 200% sometimes depending on the watch condition is a very big driver in vintage. A hundred percent. And I would be, I would rather find myself trying to sell sort of an obscure watch that's in exceptional condition than like a modern Royal Oak where I'm just priced like right in the middle of the bell curve, you know, like I, I'm going to have an easier time selling the oddball. Um, yeah, we're, we're circling around condition is the new rarity. Uh, everyone seems to be saying it, but as people learn more and more, it's just going to become more and more true. Yeah, it, it's, it, it, so it, I'm sort of saying two things. Uh, I think that's the first part of it. But the second part of it is gone are the days where, you know, you, you can just buy like some modern hype watch, whatever, and sit on it for two weeks and make 15% on your money. Like, I don't think that's coming back anytime soon. And I, I, think, hope not. I, I think there is still some people that have yet to learn that. Um, and, you know, that's okay. <laughs> you know, buyers and sellers need to be educated. Um, I, I just, uh, you know, that's an important point to try to understand if you're going to be transacting in the market today. It's just it, the, the, the days of, you know, rolling out of bed and throwing something on your Instagram story with a lofty price and having it move like that's, that's not the reality of the market anymore. And I think uh, we're going to be in a better place for it. I think so too. I think so too. I've noticed conversations have become a bit more healthier. Uh, when I, what, what do I mean when I say that? It's not just about price. Uh, and I say that fully recognizing that we just spent like 20 minutes talking about auction results, but, <laughs> um, you know, prices are important. Like the dynamics of the market are extremely important. And I think they can be informative in assessing the health of, uh, the segment and the hobby, but none of us are, I shouldn't say none of us, people that I talk to on a regular basis about watches didn't get into watches to talk about prices or to like buy and sell them and make money. Uh, it's, it was for the designs. It was to own them and enjoy them and understand the stories behind them and, you know, understand how vintage piece, pieces can tell us about what was going on in, in the times that they were made and what they told us about the people who were buying them. That's a lot more interesting. Uh, you can basically have a conversation of bullet points if you just want to talk about price. So you're, you're basically looking at a bar chart 
uh, at that point. I and absolutely then, welcome the death of abject speculation. I don't think anyone who had been in the market for a long time uh, appreciated that. And I think we were all pretty sick of it by the time the 2019, 2020 rolled around. For sure. For sure. Okay. Having just uh, talked about price for a good 30 minutes, uh, should we move on to our final segment? Yeah, let's do it. Uh, this is this is an idea. I we're we're kind of just throwing stuff at a wall and seeing what sticks. Um, but I had an idea for a segment called Only Wrist, <laughs> because we are two people talking about one wrist uh, and what should be on it. The idea is that whatever we wind up doing this, if we do it weekly or every other week, or maybe we never do it again. But I uh, would like to come up with a gentleman, a lady, some character in our world who needs a watch, uh, give a little bit of color to their life. And then I think it would be fun to have Max and I speculate about which watch would be best for this scenario. So I'm going to begin. Uh, and hopefully, I'm thinking eventually we'll have some readers or listeners rather that uh, might be able to submit some people for us to speculate on. But as this is our first episode, um, I have the prompt and we begin. Uh, this week, our gentleman is going to be named Mark. Mark is mid 50s and owns an insurance brokerage just outside of London. Mark's done well for himself by all metrics, except that he's a bit of a prick. His wife has just left him, and though his kids love him, they're distant because he spent all of his time during their childhood building his company. Mark never does anything active, but also never consumes anything except for a pack of camels a day. He has a six-inch wrist and dresses like he's auditioning for HBO Succession. Mark is still a wealthy man, but after the divorce, not as wealthy as he used to be. He therefore wants a watch that reminds the world and himself that he's still successful, but won't alienate his clients or stop him playing with his children more frequently. Max, what do you think Mark should purchase? Well, first of all, I just want to highlight that that uh, little prose there. It sounds like you're writing an even more depressing like sequel to American Psycho. <laughs> That was very in-depth and involved. What it really um, is, is I'm imagining my life if I didn't start Hairspring. Uh, so. <laughs> that hits a little too close to home. Um, all right. Yeah. So my, my pick would be uh, an overseas, a modern overseas. Uh, why? I, I think that's a watch that comes to mind as like if your problem is you know you need a nice watch and you don't really know what to buy and the solution is to just throw money at the problem which it sounds like mark does in his family life uh but not then, as much money not as much money <laughs> see this is this is why i think this uh, we talked about our picks a little bit or i i heard max's pick rather a little bit beforehand and what i think is genius about this and i'll just really quickly say i think this is the exact kind of guy who when wealthy would have bought a 5711 but that is now i'm guessing what i'm gonna say uh, fuck it I, I created this prompt is now out of his reach <laughs> and so that's why yeah. i think this is so, so genius so is your pick a 5711? No, 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 no. Uh, oh, but okay. Yeah. The, re the only, so 5711 obviously came to mind. Uh, first of all, I thought it would be boring to say that. But the reason why I think Mark wouldn't go with a 5711 is because he would be simple-minded enough to look at it next to like an overseas and just be like, oh, you know, that like there's nothing going on with 5711. It's a time-only watch. Right. Like, and I, I guess I didn't specify when I say overseas, I'm talking about like one of the dual times or chronograph or, or whatever, like one of the, one of the ones with a bunch of shit on the dial. Um, so I, yeah, that's why I didn't pick a 5711. I think he would look at it and just think it was boring. See, we went down very similar paths here. Um, because I, I, okay, insurance brokerage. Yeah, right. We're going to try and have more differing perspectives in the future and maybe a few fights, uh, hopefully physical. But for now, you're going to get a very similar view. Um, so I thought this guy would definitely buy a 5711, but it's definitely still too much for him now. And then you start thinking like this guy. So you're going to be wandering down the streets of probably Bond Street, London or something like that. And you're going to be stopping in the different windows and trying to look for things that look like a 5711. And overseas gets pretty close. But I speculate that Mark would still think that's too much money. I think he would still probably think that uh, 15202 uh, would be too much money or whatever the modern one is now. Um, I think Mark wandered by both of those 
and stopped into Girard Perigo. And in Girard Perigo, they were thrilled to offer him the green ceramic Aston Martin Laureato. <laughs> Oh my god. This is it's so water specific. resistant. It's water resistant. It's scratch resistant. So he sees it as ample playtime with his children. It's not gonna alienate his clients because no one knows what the fuck it is if you don't, you know, listen to this podcast. And it looks interesting to someone who um maybe doesn't appreciate watch history as much. I don't mean to rip on the Laureato. I think the early ones are actually quite interesting. But the um the Aston Martin green ceramic Laureato is my pick for Mark. Yeah, those are two pretty good picks. I would say. Uh, I think those are pretty solid. Uh, yeah, I, I suppose we'll have to. Uh, it's difficult for me to envision any Londoners wearing a watch with a green dial for some reason. I think of British racing green when I think of London. That's what the uh, 1931 <laughs> Reverso chose. You know what I'm saying? That's true. That's true. It is a little bit too on the nose when the entire case is green, uh, but. It's just not to my taste, but I suspect for someone like that, it may be to their taste. Who knows? It is, um, what do you, uh, as a side shoot of this, what do we think of uh, this ceramic case trend? I love the early things like the IWC 3705 and the ceramic Da Vinci's. I'm becoming increasingly a little bit tired of seeing white ceramic Royal Oaks and um, bright ceramic things in my feed. I, don't, I just don't find it that interesting. And I always worry with ceramic cases, um, you knock it hard once, you're, you could be looking at a fracture and um, ceramics have improved quite a lot, but inherent to hardness and scratch resistance is also fragility. The harder a material is very often, the more fragile it is. And that's certainly true of most ceramics. Um, I'm just, I'm a little bit bored of the ceramic, bright ceramic color trend. Um, but I guess I'm kind of a guy who likes the classics and steel and yellow gold and white gold, et cetera. But um, what do you think about it? Well, we learned today on uh, the latest edition of Hodinkee's Talking Watches, they had uh, the outgoing CEO of AP. Uh, he confirmed that they're doing the uh, ceramic oh, QP in a new great. blue. So it's not even a new color. It's just going to be a darker blue. I'm, I'm waiting for that Ant-Man Royal Oak. Um, yeah, I mean, listen, he did confirm that they're they're doing another one this year. Um, or I guess this coming year. Yeah, listen, I mean, it. it's so difficult to make a quality wash in ceramic that I want to continue to remind myself it's impressive anytime they can be made. Um, but it is overdone, and it is becoming a, a little uh, gimmicky when you're just making the same watches over and over in the same material, just in different colors. But... I say all that, you know, I've worn a, this, the ceramic QPs from AP around a little bit, um, the black uh, and the blue, and I love both. <laughs> they're, they're both incredible. They feel great on the wrist. Uh, I, I am partial to the dial designs uh, and the case colors. But, uh, you know, the brands understand that the market freaks out anytime they release one of these and it's kind of just easy money for them and they're going to continue to sell out as long as they can make them. And it is what it is. Um, I am encouraged that we are seeing uh, the proliferation of a few different metals now. Um, you know, we saw Tudor come out with the Pelagos what feels like ages ago, but I guess was less than 10 years ago at this point. Um, and it's now beginning to roll into the Rolex line with the Yacht Master that came out last year um, and Bevel Bugs, which is huge for us. <laughs> um, so, you know, titanium is, is very cool. I own a left-hand Pelagos that I love. Um, it doesn't really fit in the box of what I usually like, but the, the case metal is great. Um, and so I hope we continue to see that. Titanium is always uh, just a fun little twist on an expected classic. Uh, I, I quite enjoy the lightness. It always does scratch a little bit more easily. Uh, but titanium for me is always a fun wearing experience. Some people like the feel of a platinum, something super you, reminding you that you have something special on wrist. But if you just want a watch to kind of strap on and forget that it's there, titanium is always a good place to start. I'll also just quickly say um, ceramic does wear very well. I agree. Um, I, I've tried on... Uh, a few of the Royal Oaks. Um, I just get bored by the bright colors. That was that was 
all I was saying. I, I have nothing against ceramics. I just want to be clear. Uh, but I'll also say Ben Amias, I think as we record this, this is his last day in office as CEO of AP. So it could be quite exciting what comes next. I'm sure his yeah. uh, influence is still going to stay over the brand for a few years longer, no doubt, because things are already in the works. But it'll be interesting to see what the new direction they take is. Yeah, I actually, I enjoyed this talking watches a lot. And I say that as somebody who has not liked uh, many of the recent episodes they've done. And as I was watching it today, I was kind of thinking I wanted to bring it up in this conversation. So maybe this will get cut. But I actually, I found the conversation to be really pleasant and illuminating. And the reason why I enjoyed it so much is because we follow all this stuff so closely that it can be really easy to lose track of like key things that help direct brands. Uh, and one, the one thing that they covered on the episode today that I loved and found really helpful was sort of the, the turnaround that uh, Francois led uh, at AP. You know, he gave the, the statistic that when he became the head of America's they were selling six million a year. That's revenue, not six million watches, six million dollars in revenue across ninety-five doors, which is really an astonishing statistic. And Ben, of course, asked him, you know, how you know what drove the turnaround. And he kind of highlighted three different things, but one of them was getting watches on the wrists of the right people. Um, and back in the the mid aughts, late aughts, the right people were young people that were prominent in the culture. Um, and that was athletes, that was actors, that was uh, business people. And in a lot of respects, what they're doing today doesn't differ from that strategy. And it kind of helped me put what they're doing today in context. Now, I hate most of AP's modern watches. I think the Marvel watches are a joke. Uh, I, I don't think they're attractive or cool. Um, I think even to be frank, like most of the modern Tell me how you line really feel, is, is horrible. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I think I'm, well, cause I'm saying all this in the context, I think it's important people understand that. Like, I, I really don't care for 98% of what the brand produces today, but like from a sort of a corporate strategy perspective, I, I appreciate that the strategy of going after younger people that are prominent in the culture and kind of targeting younger collectors or consumers, whatever you want to call them. Like that's the strategy that turned around the brand less than 20 years ago, you know? And so it makes me have a little bit more of an appreciation of what they're doing today. And they're allowed to target a, a, a customer that isn't me, right? Like, so clearly what they're doing works for a lot of people. Um, and so I have to, I, I, I have no choice but to respect that, right? Um, you know, who am I to say that they're doing it wrong? Would I love it if if they were manufacturing stuff that was reminiscent more of what they were doing in the 1940s through the 1970s? Yeah, of course. But the strategy we're not representative of most buyers. I think that's very healthy to remember. When I, when I say we, I don't mean Max and I. I mean most people listening to this podcast. Yeah, a hundred percent. So. You know, to, to kind of put a bottom line on it, like AP was really struggling there, particularly in America for a long time. Um, and they executed the hell out of a strategy that really brought them back from uh, from the nethers. And obviously, they in, in more recent years, let's say over the last eight years, they've ridden some kind of strong industry tailwinds to, to, to reach super high levels. But... Um, there is a strategy there. And what they're doing today really isn't super different from what they were doing, call it 15 years ago, in targeting like Shaquille O'Neal or Arnold Schwarzenegger or Muhammad Ali, et cetera, et cetera. So it does, it does come from a good place. As much as we like to... Uh... As much as we like to make fun of brand ambassadors as watch nerds, it is a strategy that is demonstrated to work effectively many, many times. And I just, it must have been quite a fun dinner party at the AP boutique to have Jay Z and Arnold in one room. I can't imagine what that yeah, was like. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but yeah, um, to put a little bit of a bow on it, uh, what, what I thought was nice about that talking watches uh, was just kind of reminding me what the early years were like. Um, 
my my trajectory to watches really began pretty hard maybe around like 2010 2011 which is pretty early and i just i got obsessed really quick uh getting my hands on all the content I could. And there was just so little out there. And it was interesting to hear the business perspective of that side of things, that there was little out there in terms of demand as well. And, you know, in the context of the auctions we just talked about, I just think it's it's interesting to remember just how far this world has come in such a short space of time. And I think probably a lot of people listening to this, the average of the people who I talk to on Instagram, it's maybe, you know, three to four years they've been into watches, something like that. But it's very healthy to take a long-term perspective um, when you're looking at market trends or um, even if it's buying trends or just what's popular now. It's just healthy to take um, the long-term horizon, both uh, in the future and just taking that arc into the past as well. So you're saying sometime soon we'll be able to get Rolexes at discount. Yeah, I'm really looking for that 1518 around, uh, what was the lowest one sold for? Like 75 grand in the early <laughs> I'll take that. I'll take that okay. 75 grand 1518 next year, please. All right, yeah, I think that's pretty much all we got to say for the first one. Um, this, was, this was a prototype, so let us know what you think. Uh, I'll be curious to see. But yeah, this is, uh, this is our podcast. Welcome to all of our seven listeners. Thanks for listening. We'll come up with a name. Probably not. <laughs> 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 Later. All right. Bye.